This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Hi, I'm Lena Wynn, formerly with CBS in Los Angeles. My favorite part of the day is that first cup of coffee. Then it's my second cup with Keith. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and this episode is a by-request episode. What I mean by that is uh, someone uh, sent me a private message, uh, said that they really enjoyed listening to the podcast and asked me specifically if I would do an entire episode on this specific topic. And that topic, of course, is the question of whether or not the New Testament condemns homosexuality. Uh, of course, this is a um, a pretty controversial subject. It's one that I'll be honest with everyone. I myself wrestled with for the longest time and primarily wrestled with it because of what I believed the scripture said. Now, I know for a lot of people that have already made up their mind on this topic and or have just decided they don't care what the Bible says and they, they just want to be affirming uh, of people who are gay or trans or uh, etc., um, non, non-straight people, in other words. Um, I, I know a lot of people, probably especially younger people, um, who've just decided, look, I don't. it doesn't really matter to me if the Bible does or doesn't. I just think it's wrong to condemn people or treat them differently because of their sexual orientation or um, identity or gender or anything like that. And listen, I agree. I totally understand that. Um, I am someone, though, who was raised from a very young age. And so a lot of my listeners, you might be in this in this uh, same category. Some who have been raised for a long time being told that it really does matter what the Bible says about something. And you can't just say necessarily, well, I don't like that or I don't want to believe that. And especially if it's in contradiction or you believe um that that shift in belief is going against what you believe anyway, or people have told you that the Bible says. So anyway, this was my struggle, and my wife Wendy and I both, um, several years ago. This has probably been like maybe seven, yeah, probably seven or eight years ago. Um, and and this was a struggle for us because it was starting to become um, a noticeable tension between what we felt in our hearts was right and what we had been told and what we believed uh, the Bible said. And so we were wrestling with the problem, but the whole reason we were wrestling, the whole reason we were trying to understand it from the scriptural perspective was because it didn't match what what we felt was right or good or true. In other words, it didn't match what we really felt like a God who looked like Jesus um, would be, would, would say or would want or desire, you know, that it just didn't seem to line up with what we understood, you know, who, who Jesus was, what Christ was all about. And so that was really what was driving us to go to the scriptures. Now, not to change the scriptures, because I know I've gotten this complaint from a lot of people that, oh, Keith, you're just changing the scriptures to say what you want them to say. Well, I can, I can, um, honestly say, that uh, that is not at all what happened. I'm, I'm very glad to say that by digging into the scriptures, looking, going back and looking at, um, which we're going to do in this episode, um, looking at um, what are called sort of the clobber passages, 1 Corinthians 6 um, or Romans chapter 1, for example. And there's others, but when it comes to the New Testament, um, those are the two places uh, where I think most Christians who want to say, that the Bible does condemn homosexuality. Um, those are the verses that they turn to. That's why they're called clobber verses. 
And then they'll turn to them and read this or quote these these passages and say, aha, look, right there, see? Um, the Apostle Paul is explicitly condemning the practice of homosexuality. And therefore, it's a sin, it's an abomination, and all the rest. Um, and so, because of that, because those who want to use those scripture verses to justify condemning gay people use these passages, and because Christians who honestly are struggling with the issue, the, the, the verses they're grappling with are those specific texts. That's why I think it's so important to go and look really, really hard, really seriously, and really honestly about those texts. Do they say what everybody has been telling you they say or not? And I understand as with anything else I do on this podcast, your mileage may vary. You may hear what I'm about to say and, and come to a different conclusion. And you know what? That's totally fine. It really is. Um, the point of the podcast really is to, um, you know, bring to light some, some information, some details, uh, that you may not be aware of. And if it doesn't convince you, then it doesn't convince you, right? That I, I can't change anybody's mind or heart, but what I can do is at least show you some things that you may not have been aware of before. And again, even if you don't agree with my conclusions, at least now you know. Now you can't never say, I didn't know that. Because if you keep listening, you're going to learn some things you didn't know. Okay? So let's uh, let's start 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. And this <clears throat> is, um, well, this is a pretty big deal, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 seems to say, in fact, um, I'm going to see real quickly here if I can pull this up. I think I would have had this already pulled up, but I didn't. So here we go. In in real time, boys and girls, I'm pulling this up. Here we go. In the New International Version or in NASB or really um, Revised Standard Version, pretty much any modern translation, English translation um, of the New Testament, you're going to read something like uh, this. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In in other translations, it will say, instead of men who have sex with men, it'll just say, uh, nor those who practice homosexuality. Um, but what you need to know, this is the big aha that you need to understand about that particular verse, is that... That is a new addition. Like, in other words, that's, that's an edit that's been changed. That prior to, um, 1940, I think it's 1946, um, there was no such thing as an English copy of the Bible, uh, English translation of the Bible that said that. Uh, so, Think about that for a second. Um, by the way, this uh, all of that is owed to the incredible research that has been done by um, a biblical scholar. His name is Kathy V. Baldock. Um, and I'm quoting from her research here. She says, the intention... So it was changed, by the way, when there was a, a group of people that were, uh, they were doing a translation of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Okay? And uh, they're the ones who inserted the word homosexual into this passage, okay? And so what she found was, by looking into the RSV team, the people who actually did the translations, who made the decision to put the word homosexual into the English translation for the first time ever, here is what uh, what she says. So this, is, yeah, this was in 1946. She says, the intention of the Revised Standard Version team and the publishers was to create a version of the Bible that was more readable and accessible in its updated language. As the translation team labored throughout the years, they based their work mainly on the King James Version, the 1611, and the ERV Version from 1885, and the American Standard Version from 1901. However, during the 1930s and 1940s, the time when the RSV team was doing their work, and it was over a 15-year time span, uh, it was during a time in medical professions and in the culture where people still did not understand what same-sex attractions even meant. And there were burgeoning theories, but it was still seen as a mystery 
then as a pathology, and eventually as a mental illness. I'm still quoting from her research. Specifically regarding 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, the translation team of the RSV relied mainly upon a fairly recent translation of the words arsenokotai and malakos. Um, we're going to get into those two Greek words um, in more detail here in this podcast in just a second. But they uh, they relied on a recent translation uh, that rendered arsenokotai as katamite and malakos as sodomite, respectively. Um, and this appeared in the Moffat Bible, 1925. Uh, James Moffat, a Scottish theologian, was a member of the RSV translation team and second in seniority to Dr. Weigel, who was in charge. Those two words, asunarkotai and malakos in the Greek, although still problematic in the Moffat translation, were actually somewhat more reflective of the actual meanings of asunarkotai and malakos than homosexual. So that's what happened. The RSV team took the two Greek words, arsenokotai and malakos, and they changed it to say homosexuality. And that was a mistake. And not only was it a mistake, it was an intentional um, strategic change to those two words to to, um, insert a condemnation of homosexuality, which the translators hoped to do. And they, by the way, congratulations, you did it. <laughs> um, because prior to 1946, um, if you looked at the King James Bible, the 1611, which is the one, the main one they were using in their translation efforts, um, those words, Arsenokotai and Malakoi, are not translated homosexual. So please understand that before 1946, no Christian owned a Bible, an English Bible translation with the word homosexuality in it. That means no Christians were debating using scripture whether or not someone could be a homosexual Christian or not, because their Bibles did not mention homosexuality. So what did they mention? Well, if you go and read um, the 1611 translation, you'll see what it says is this. This is from the King James, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the word homosexual does not appear there, right? Um, and so now we can at least say this is when the word homosexual was added into your Bible. Now, of course, this makes it a slam dunk for, for so many Christians who want to say, because they can just open their English Bible, they can turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and they can quote this verse that says specifically that homose- those who practice homosexuality will not enter the kingdom. Closed. Close the book. Game over. It's over. There's no argument because the Bible says so. But the problem is the Bible does not say so in the original Greek. That is not what it actually says. Um, you all know one of my favorite New Testament scholars is David Bentley Hart. He has a brand new translation of the New Testament, which I highly recommend. Um, and in that, he has a note on this particular verse, which is really helpful. I want to say thank you, David Bentley Hart, for adding a note as to why he corrects that mistake that was made by those translators in 1946, and he returns it to its original meaning. Malakoi, meaning effeminate or soft, and arsenokotai, not meaning homosexual, uh, but meaning one who, um, basically we would call it a pedophile, uh, a man who sexually abuses a younger boy or a child. So uh, I'm going to read from his uh, notes, from his translation. And this is what he says under 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says this, A man who is malakoi is either soft in any number of senses, self-indulgent, dainty, cowardly, physically weak, or gentle in various largely benign senses, delicate, mild, etc. Some translators of the New Testament take it here to mean the passive partner in a male homoerotic act. But that, he says, is an unwarranted supposition. Precisely what an arsenokotai is has long been a matter of speculation and argument. Literally, it means a man who beds, that is, couples with males. But 
There is no evidence of its use before Paul's text here in 1 Corinthians 6.9. It would not mean, he says, homosexual in the modern sense of a person of a specific erotic disposition for the simple reason that the ancient world possessed no comparable concept of a specifically homoerotic sexual identity. It would refer to a particular sexual behavior, but we cannot say exactly which one. David Bentley Hart goes on to mention that the Clementine Vulgate interpretation um, renders the word osinokotai as those who use male concubines or prostitutes. And Martin Luther's German Bible uh, interprets the word as referring to pedophiles. Um, And further he says, My guess at the proper connotation of the word is based simply upon the reality that in the first century, the most common and readily available form of male homoerotic sexual activity was a master's or patron's exploitation of a young male slave. You and I would call that pedophilia, not homosexuality. So when we read the word in our English New Testament translations, homosexual, we need to remember this is not what Paul had in mind when he wrote those words that are today translated that way. Now, what he meant most likely was either those who sexually abuse young boys, or those who engaged in pagan temple sexual rituals. And what's more, turning to the term malakoi, when Paul uses the term malakoi, which really simply means soft or effeminate, he was specifically referring to men who shaved their beards, who had smooth faces, or grew their hair long, because to him, that would be looking like a woman. In other words, in the first century, a man who shaved his beard wanted to look like a woman. He had a clean, smooth face like a woman. If he grew his hair long, he looked like a woman. And uh, anyone who behaved that way would have been considered, in Paul's view, in a first century view of gender, unmanly. But hopefully none of us today would agree with Paul's conviction that a man who shaves his beard or has long hair, won't enter the kingdom of God. We have to place this statement, this particular view that Paul had as a cultural view, in light of other statements that Paul makes, that by the way, we have no problem putting in that box. For example, in the same exact, you know, chapters of 1 Corinthians, when Paul also says that women should cover their heads when they pray. Or when he says multiple times, and he even commands it, that everyone should greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't do that today. Most of us don't. We don't insist that women cover their heads whenever they pray. We don't insist that every Christian greet one another with a holy kiss, even though Paul commands it multiple times. But why don't we? Because we recognize, oh, that's what they did back then. This is what they believed in the first century. These were cultural norms for people in the Middle East in the first century. And this is why Paul in that letter makes reference to those things and even commands that those things be done. But why we um, exempt ourselves from practicing those things that they practiced. Why? Because in certain cases, we say, that's not for us today because that was something cultural for them. And I would argue that we have to put this idea of a man shaving his beard or having long hair and labeling that that man malakoi or soft or effeminate disqualifies him from being entered into the kingdom of God. Paul thought so. But in the same verse, he also thought that women couldn't cut their hair short. Would we would we be comfortable saying that a woman who cuts her hair short is also guilty of some sort of a sin that would disqualify her from entering the kingdom of God? I hope your answer is no, of course not. And so for the same reason, we wouldn't disqualify a man who has long hair and shaves his beard as being like a woman and therefore, you know, disqualified from entering the kingdom of God. That the whole concept of how you dress, how you cut your hair, whether you have a beard or not, whether you... Um, behave the way 
somebody in the first century would have considered manly or womanly, well, you know, quote unquote, against nature as a, as a disqualifier for entering in the kingdom of God. And I would argue, if you're going to say, well, no, 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 Paul meant that, and it, and that's what it should be, and so therefore, yes, if a man shaves his beard or has long hair, he cannot enter the kingdom. Well, then, then go all the way, and now you, you, you must greet other Christians with a holy kiss. Um, women have to cover their heads, and when they pray, they have to have long hair. They, and let's define that. What's long? What's short? Right? You know, getting to this little splitting hairs thing. And I get it. I know some Christian groups do this. They actually do still hold to these very strict first century views um, of, of how men and women should act and dress and etc. I personally think that that is ridiculous. We should not do that. Um, I've written several blog posts on this. Uh, one of them was the abomination of a close shave. Um, but but here's here's the bottom line, I would say. We have made this issue, this question, homosexuality, one of the main, we act as if it's one of the main tenets of the Christian faith. We act as if Jesus and the apostles just argued this subject day and night, that they made it a big deal. And the truth is they never mention it at all. And I, I don't care what you want to say, Paul never mentioned homosexuality. Not as we understand it. Not in his letters. He mentioned a synecotai, which is pedophilia. He mentioned being malakoi, which is a man shaving his beard, or liking poetry or music, or having long hair. That's what he mentioned. But he never mentions homosexuality. Jesus never mentions homosexuality. And it's specifically because there was a decision made in 1946 for a handful of Bible translators to insert the word, to distort the meaning of those two Greek words and calling that homosexuality and putting that in the English translations of our Bibles that now has spread across every English modern translation that we have of the Bible. And it's it's giving ammunition for people who want to exclude people who are, who are gay or trans or homosexual or what have you, anyone that's not straight. And, and it's a distortion. It's it's not there. It's weaponizing scripture. And it's an intentional, they know what they're doing. They know that that's not what that means. They know those words don't mean that, but they want it to be in there. So they stuck it in there. They inserted it in there. And I'm sad to say uh, it worked exactly the way they intended it to work. Because there are Christians today, pastors from the pulpit, people on social media, quoting this verse all day long and making the case that the Bible says something it doesn't say, and never said until 1946. And so, um, the other passage, of course, is Romans chapter 1. And I say this all the time, I'm just going to say it again. I really believe that if someone with an open mind, maybe that's the problem, you don't have an open mind when it comes to this, you've already made up your mind according uh, about this topic. But I'm saying if you have an open mind, if you're willing to go and look and say, you know what, if if I go and read it, I'm willing to be convinced. I'm, I'm willing to change my mind. Okay? If, that, if you can honestly do that, then turn to Romans chapter 1 and start at the top and read through chapter 1 of Romans. And I, I really believe that what you'll see is that he is not condemning homosexuality. So he starts off by saying, um, verse, uh, I believe it's 18, the wrath of God is re being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So who's he talking about? Godless, wicked people. And then in verse 21, he says, those same people that their thinking has become futile, he says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this begins with people who are godless. They do evil. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Um... Their hearts are darkened. And uh, verse 22, he says, these people claim to be wise, but they became fools. And then in verse 23, he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, stop right there. So far, the only thing in Romans chapter 1 
that Paul is talking about here are people who are godless and who worship idols. He is talking about idol-worshiping pagans. Okay? Keep this in mind. This is the topic and the subject of everything he's going to say in Romans chapter 1. So in summary, these wicked goddess people denied the knowledge of God and began to worship idols. And then because of this, he says, verse 24, therefore, because they were godless, because they were pagans, because they worshipped false gods who were idols, God gave them over, because of that, in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Again, if we just stop right there, we know by going back and looking at pagan worship practices that quite often these involved sexual intercourse. Straight, male to female sexual intercourse in the temple or in rituals. And yes, sometimes same sex. Uh, but Paul puts them all together. He just calls it, these are, these are sexual impurities and they are degrading their bodies with one another. Whether it is straight or same sex doesn't matter. The point is, <laughs> these are idol worshiping pagans who are using sexual intercourse, sexual practices to degrade their bodies to worship Pan or Zeus or Aphrodite or etc., right? Pagan idols. So, because they denied God and worshipped idols, God's response was to give them over to these to these shameful desires and the degrading of their bodies. So, um, they he says then they exchanged the truth about God. Again, this is about gods. This is about worship. This is about who you who what God you believe in, what God you worship. He says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Listen, so far anyway, you would have to agree with me that what Paul is talking about, what he's upset about, what he's condemning here is idol worship that involves sexual intercourse of any kind. What Paul is condemning here is the use of sexual intercourse as part of worshipping a false god. Then he says in verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So, because they were, they started off denying God, because they started off worshiping idols, because they worshiped those idols by having sexual intercourse, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Do you know anybody who's gay because of that? Do you know anybody, first of all, do you know anybody who's gay? That's, or trans or anything like that. Someone who is not straight. I know several people that are gay, and I can tell you right now, not a single one of them is gay because they rejected God, worshipped Aphrodite or Artemis or Zeus or Pan or Apollo or any of these other pagan deities, um, and that they and that part of worshiping that that pagan deity involves uh, sexual intercourse or sexual practices. Do you? Do you know anyone like that? Because I don't. But Paul did. And that is who Paul is talking about. <laughs> so keep it straight in your head. This is the entire thing he is upset about. Right? So um, then he continues, Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. But again, please Follow the flow of the argument that Paul is laying out. There were people who denied God. They worshipped idols. That worship involved sexual intercourse. That intercourse aroused unnatural lusts and desires. And the end result was a judgment within their bodies for denying God, worshipping idols, and engaging in pagan ritual sex rites. Okay? So anyone who is inflamed with lust, yes, that would be a sin. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. Paul's entire flow of thought begins with a discussion about those who deny God, worship created beings or idols rather than the creator, and then engage in ritual sexual intercourse as part of that worship. So think about it this way. I, I, I always like to, at this point, stop and say, so think about it so far. 
let's just stop right here and think what is what what Paul is saying, and what if what if what if Paul's argument what if the flow of Paul's argument so far in the book of Romans went like this? There were some people that denied God. Those people worshipped idols, and then they worshipped those idols by by having men and women engage in straight sexual intercourse. Got it? Would you, at this point in the text, conclude, aha, God condemns male and female intercourse? Of course he does. Look, Paul says in Romans, people denied God, they worshipped idols, and the way they worshipped idols was to have a man, a man and a woman engage in sexual intercourse as to, to, in order to worship this false god. Therefore, Paul's point is that God condemns straight sex. Of course you wouldn't. But why wouldn't you? Because you're straight. <laughs> because you don't have an inherent bias against the kind of intercourse, straight sex, that you, in, that you uh, enjoy. So in your mind, that's not the point. The point would be, this, and this is what I'm saying, if, if what he was describing was straight sex, straight male-female intercourse, as in the practice of worshiping these idols, you would you'd see it. You'd clearly understand it. You'd say, "Oh, yeah. Well, Paul, what is Paul upset about here? The sex? Well, yes, but not the kind of sex. He's upset that sex at all is being used for the purpose of worshiping a false god, an idol, a pagan deity. That's what he's upset about. So, if we change the kind of intercourse here from straight sex to same sex, it doesn't change the point." It doesn't change the argument he's making. What he's upset about is not the kind of sex. In other words, it's not like, oh, oh, wait, wait, they're doing straight sex now to worship Artemis? Oh, then that's fine. Awesome. Hey, guys, you know what? You're great. Keep doing it. It's awesome because you're using straight sex. I just don't want you using, you know, homosexual intercourse to worship your false god. Right? We know that's not what he's saying. That what he's upset about is not the kind of sex being used to worship a false idol or a pagan deity, but the fact that they're worshiping a pagan deity at all. Okay? And so, again, this is a case of us reading our bias into the text. So, um, I think one thing that also really helped me um, was to realize that (laughs) when you meet people who are gay, uh, when you know someone who's gay, and you know a gay person who is follower of Jesus. I got to say, the people that I know who are gay and who are followers of Jesus, I see Jesus in them more than I have seen Jesus in almost anybody else who's straight. And you know why? Because they have many of them have told me with tears in their eyes about how a pastor or a Christian friend or even their own family members have rejected them and condemned them for being who they are, for being gay. And you know what? Because of Christ in them, they have told me with tears in their eyes, I forgive them. I still love them. And that is beautiful to me. So in other words, I see Christ more in my gay Christian friends for the ways they love and forgive straight Christians, even their own family members, who condemn them because of misunderstanding these texts. Uh, So I see Christ more in them than I do in the Christians who are misusing these texts to condemn their brothers and sisters. Sometimes literally their brothers and sisters. So, I honestly don't believe that Romans chapter 1 is a condemnation at all of what anything you and I would call homosexuality today. And by the way, I'm not the only one. You know that? This is what's so great. If you look at first century uh, Christian thinkers, uh, Aristides, um, in the second century, uh, Justin Martyr, um, they also, and their commentaries on this Romans passage, also said that what Paul was addressing here was idolatry. And the use of sexual intercourse to worship false gods. Um, Justin Martyr affirmed this, uh, affirmed this uh, interpretation. Um, and so these are not liberal Christian sources, my friends. <laughs> uh, these, and by the way, these early church fathers aren't alone in this. Um, Matthew Henry, Bible commentary, extraordinaire, the Matthew Henry commentary, Scottish evangelist Robert Haldane, Orthodox Calvinist Charles Hodge all agree 
in their commentaries on this passage that Paul is not condemning homosexuality. But Paul's point here is to condemn pagan sexual temple practices which involved prostitution and public displays of sex, both straight and homosexual sex. But it's not the kind of sex he's upset about. It's the fact that they're doing, uh, that they're in, that they're worshiping these false gods. Um, Matthew Henry, I'm going to read for this. Uh, Matthew Henry's commentary. Uh, this is, by the way, his commentary from Isaiah 57. So, and I know there's a lot of Old Testament passages that condemn um, these kinds of things too. But again, in those cases, they are also condemning um, idol, pagan idol worship. So Matthew Henry's commentary uh, from Isaiah 57 says this: In Isaiah's time. Idolatry abounded. Witness the abominable idolatries of Ahaz, which some think are particularly referred to here, Isaiah 57, and of Manasseh. They were dotingly fond of their idols. They were inflamed with them as those that burnt in unlawful, unnatural lusts. Romans 1.27, he references. Still quoting Matthew Henry, they were mad upon their idols, Jeremiah 50.38. They inflamed themselves with them by their violent passions in the worship of them as those of Baal's prophets that leaped upon the altar and cut themselves, 1 Kings 18, 26. Justly, therefore, they were given up to their own heart's lusts. Um, Charles Hodge, from his commentary on Romans, says, The reasons why Paul refers in the first instance to the sins of uncleanness in illustration and proof of the degradation of the heathen probably were that those sins were always intimately connected with idol worship forming at times even a part of the service rendered to the false gods. Um, Robert Haldane, I mentioned, um, on his commentary on Romans from 1835, (laughs) says that the apostle, having awfully depicted the magnitude of pagan wickedness, and having shown that their ungodliness in abandoning the worship of the true God was the reason why they they had been abandoned to their lusts, here descends into particulars for the purpose of showing to what horrible excesses God had permitted them to proceed. This was necessary, he says, to prove how odious in the sight of God is the crime of idolatry. Its recompense was this fearful abandonment. It was also necessary in order to give it a just idea of human corruption, as evidence in its monstrous enormities when allowed to take its course, and also in order to exhibit to believers a living proof of the depth of the evil from which God had delivered them, and finally to prove the falsity of the pagan religion. So, um, again, if you doubt this assessment, I still, I welcome you. Go back to Romans. Read, start reading in chapter one. Follow the train of thought. And I think you will see that. Um, this is not what Paul is condemning here. Um, I, I think that deals with it mainly, um, because those are the two main passages that most Christians turn to. Um, and I would say, too, I think really the final the final step, the final piece in the puzzle for a lot of Christians, like if for the longest time you have condemned homosexuality and it's been because you've been told to, it's been because you've been pointed to these verses, you've been, uh, and even the translation itself is reinforcing this idea by inserting words like homosexuality that don't belong there that are not referenced there. And so, you know, hopefully you've listened to what I've said. Maybe you've said, okay, maybe I should rethink this. I would say for a lot of straight people, and I just found this to be true when I've been in conversation with people, that when we get to this point in the conversation, when we realize that, okay, these these passages don't really specifically condemn people who would say, you know, I was born this way since I was a small child. I've always known that I was attracted. I didn't choose it. It's not a lifestyle choice. I I couldn't help it. This is my natural way of being. I am attracted to people of the same sex. And they have tried so hard. They have prayed. They have other people pray over them. They They have agonized over this for the longest time. And now they have finally reached a place where they say, you know what? This is who I am. God created me to be this way. And it is not a sin. It is not an abomination. Those New Testament passages do not condemn someone who has a same-sex attraction. And so this is not a sin, right? 
when you realize, when you, especially when you can meet people who are like that, who can tell you with tears in their eyes their stories, and I have heard those stories. But I think quite often, if you're straight, as I am, <laughs> um, sometimes there we have to be honest with ourselves and admit that it's really not about the scripture. It's sometimes it's just about the fact that we can't relate to that. Like, we don't feel that. We don't feel a same-sex attraction. And so when we try to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who feels attracted to, to someone of the same sex, we have an internal revulsion. We have an internal reaction. that We have an ick factor, I want to say. Or we just go, ooh, that, that seems weird and unnatural. Yes, to you, because that's not natural to you. And so that's why you can't understand it and you can't relate to it in your skin because that's not who you are. And so we have to be able to take a step outside of ourselves to at least, and I think it's so helpful to hear the stories of people who would say and who have told me um, their story to say, Keith, this is who I am. I, I, I denied it most of my life. I fought it. I did everything I could to change it. And now I just have to say, Jesus loves me for who I am. And I would echo that. I would say, you know what? For God so loved his gay, bi, trans children, sons and daughters. Because God is love and God's love is for everyone, no matter who you are. No matter your orientation your identity, uh, your gender. Uh, none of those things matter to God. God famously looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. That's what God is concerned with. And I have been so blessed, honestly, to, to get to know some really beautiful, wonderful people who are gay, who are trans, who are bi. I have seen their hearts. I have seen the love of Christ, the image of Christ, uh, the God who is love, alive within them. And that is what really has helped to change my mind. Yes, the scriptures. Yes, going back and looking at the scriptures the way we've just done. That's been really helpful for me. It's been super helpful to realize that my English translation of the Bible is lying to me, that um, sometimes the commentaries that are in those English Bibles are lying to me. They're not being truthful, that these are things that were changed again in 1946, not that long ago, um, and that we need to go back and rethink how we treat other people. We need to go back and realize that this is not the way God would want us to treat other people. There is such a powerful passage, and I've also written a blog on this before as well, but there's a, uh, there's a really powerful passage in the book of Acts where Peter is on the roof, you may have known this, and he's praying, and three times God shows him a vision of these, uh, of, a, of like a blanket coming down out of heaven, or a sheet, I guess, coming down out of heaven. And in it are all these unclean foods, or unclean animals. And God says three times uh, to Peter, kill and eat this unclean, these unclean animals. And each time Peter responds, no, I can't do that because it's written that these are unclean and I'm not allowed to eat them. And then finally, Peter gets it. He understands the point of the vision. That what God wanted him to understand was this, and this is what Peter says. God has shown me that I should not call anyone unclean or unworthy. And I believe that we, as followers of Jesus today, people who desire to follow in the Spirit of Christ, need that kind of a moment. We need that same kind of a vision that God gave to Peter. That we would realize, that we would be able to say, God has shown me that I should not call anyone unworthy or unclean. Now, in Peter's specific case, it was Gentiles. He had a hard time understanding that 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 the pagans, in his mind, Gentiles, non-Jews, could also receive the Spirit of God. We're also loved by God. We're also included in the love of God and the kingdom of God in the in the in the mission and the heart uh, for what Christ was all about. 
And he needed to have that shift, that paradigm shift. He needed God to show him that this particular group of people that he considered to be unclean, sinners, unworthy of the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, inclusion in the people of God, that category, who are the people of God. Peter needed that Spirit of God to come to him three times in a vision so that eventually he would change his mind, his eyes would be open, and he would be finally able and willing to say, I was wrong. God has shown me that I should not call anyone unclean. Now, I would argue that Christians today, we have the same problem. We are still playing this us and them game. There is a category of people that some of us want to keep on the outside. We say they're unclean. We say they're unworthy. And we do so because, as I just said, of these scriptures that seem to say that. But I'm telling you, what the Spirit of God wants you to see and to realize is that you should never call anyone unclean or unworthy. You should never consider anyone outside of God's love, mercy, grace. No one is outside this category of the people of God, the family of God, the children of God. There is no us and them. There is only us. Because God is love. <laughs> I say this all the time. Every episode I think I say this. But it's so true in First John. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. Amen. So I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, I didn't go, I considered covering a little bit. Um, there's a really marvelous passage where Jesus says some really great things about eunuchs. Um, and there's a special blessing that he speaks about for eunuchs, which again, what is a eunuch? A eunuch is just someone who um, doesn't conform to the normative sexual expectations of their gender, right? It's a man, a man who's a eunuch, does not have intercourse with women, does not father children, um, doesn't do what you would expect most men to do, right? A eunuch then, therefore, in fact, in the Old Testament, eunuchs were not even allowed to enter the temple, couldn't even come into the temple into the presence of God. And Jesus changes that. Jesus pronounces a promise and a blessing, a special blessing for, and in fact, he even says to his disciples, you probably can't understand this right now. You're not you're not able to receive it right now. It's going to take you some time to get to this place. But understand that, that God has a special place, a special blessing for eunuchs, for men who do not conform to the sexual norms of the day. And in fact, the conversation is said in the context of a, a conversation about uh, marriage between a man and a woman. So he drops that in after that. Like, oh, by the way, there are some men he says, who are eunuchs who were born that way. Some are made that way. Some decide to be that way for the kingdom of God. But he says, there are. there's another category of eunuchs, those who are born that way. In other words, they are born not conforming to the what we would call the normative sexual gender identity of being a, a straight man who has sex with women and fathers, children, etc. And Jesus says that God has a special blessing in his kingdom. For those people. Now, isn't it interesting though? I find it so fascinating that again in the book of Acts, who is the first non Jew convert and evangelist to, to uh, the way of Christ? It's an Ethiopian eunuch. Woohoo! Oh, I love that. Right? When Philip runs along his chariot, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And you know what's so awesome about that? We know the passage he's reading from because it tells us what he's reading. And and what we know is that, so he, does, he says, you know, I don't understand it. Philip explains it to him. Uh, the man decides he wants to be baptized into Christ. And he's baptized. And then, of course, miraculously, Philip is, vanishes and teleports away. which was the most amazing miracle in the whole New Testament. And so this Ethiopian eunuch gets back in his chariot. And we can only assume he continues to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And what's funny is, if you continue to read uh, from that point forward in the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah also includes a promise of a blessing, a greater blessing than any other blessing that is specifically for eunuchs that God is going to fulfill. And look at that. He's the fulfillment of that. He is the first fruit of that. 
I just think that is so beautiful. And that we know he took this gospel back to Ethiopia. Um, and that he was sort of the first apostle, the first evangelist, this unnamed Ethiopian eunuch who doesn't conform to sexual gender roles or expectations. So anyway, I said I wasn't going to do that, but I just did, didn't I? Anyway, <laughs> I find that so fascinating. And so um, I hope this is helpful. I, if nothing else, again, I hope this gives you some new things to think about when it comes to this topic. Um, to my friend who requested this topic, I hope this is what you were hoping for or expecting. I hope this is uh, answering all those questions uh, for everyone. If not, please let me know. Uh, I love hearing what you think about the podcast. Uh, I love getting the feedback. Um, I'd love to hear what you think about it. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please also let me know. Um, I would love to be able to cover things and topics and questions that you may have uh, in future episodes. Again, thank you so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I want to also say in closing that I have a brand new book that just released called Sola Mysterium, Celebrating the Beautiful Uncertainty of Everything. Uh, the forward is by Dr. Steve McVeigh. It's a book that covers um, uncertainty and doubt and mystery when it comes to theology, but it uh, is so much more than that. Um, in this book, I get into psychology, mathematics, science, astronomy, astrology, um, where ideas come from, idea space, uh, placebos, um, botany. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's a, a category that I don't cover in some detail and just exploring the the awe and the wonder and the mystery of this incredible universe that we live in, um, how it's actually, this idea of certainty is an illusion, and we're better off admitting the truth that we live in a universe, in a world full of uncertainty and mystery, and that is by design. We are invited by God, a God, a being who is beyond definition or comprehension, to dive deep into this ocean of mystery uh, and uncertainty to discover a God that is higher and wider and longer and deeper than we can imagine. And so anyway, I, I'm, I'm so proud of this book. It was number one for for a whole week uh, in new releases on Amazon, and um, it's still doing really strong. I'm so excited about the book. Got so many wonderful quotes and endorsements and, and reader reviews. I think right now it's got 23 uh, reviews on Amazon. They're all five-star reviews. So thank you all of you who read and reviewed the book on Amazon. If you haven't picked it up, check it out. And I am going to be doing in August 2022, uh, I'm going to be doing a brand new online course. It'll be a three-week online course where we will go through chapter by chapter uh, through the book together, Solo Mysterium. There is so much um, additional material that I wasn't able to include in the book um, that I cannot wait to dive into and to get into much more detail with everybody uh, in this course that's coming up. If you want information about the course, you can find that at my blog, keithshouse.com. Uh, you can also find information about it by just messaging me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I'd love to interact with you over there. And again, thank you for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I hope you enjoy this. I really enjoy doing these podcasts. I really enjoy it. And I um, so enjoy hearing from everyone uh, about how you are, uh, how you are enjoying the podcast as well. So thank you so much. And I hope uh, you have a great time, a uh, great week ahead, and we will talk again next time on Second Cup with Keith. Thanks.